This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. So I'm here today with Joe Byron, who's the head of IoT strategy at Thingworks, which is a PTC company and an O'Reilly partner, as we talk about the Internet of Things and what you can do with it. Hey, Joe. Hey, John. Good to see you today. Likewise. So um, let's talk about IoT platforms. We have a paper coming out about choosing IoT platforms, what they'll do for you. This is a subject that's near and dear to your heart, Joe. It is. I know a couple of people that work on IoT platforms, a couple of hundred people that I work with, actually. Yeah, so I'm glad that IoT platforms as a concept is starting to become a mainstream technology idea. Um, you know, we feel very strongly, as I, I'm sure you can imagine, that to attack the challenge of building IoT apps, just like we needed platforms for desktop software development and web software development and, and other computing paradigms, uh, we, we can't wait around for the millions or hundreds of millions of IoT apps to be built from scratch that we need to start the abstractions and build the foundations um, in the form of an IoT platform so that people can get right to work and start building their apps today, not wait around and learn about lots of technology. Right. Just like the way that you would never um, build your own web service from scratch in order to start investigating mm -hmm. stuff that you could do in the cloud, you don't have to build your own IoT data gathering warehousing transmission layer to start figuring out what you can get from IoT data. That's exactly right. So, I mean, while those things were fun, I thought they were fun things to do. Uh, <laughs> but um, just like I thought it was fun to build my own web server in 1995, um, I would have been, uh, I wouldn't have built many web apps if I did that from scratch each time. So uh, taking advantage of the hard work that other people have done to build a foundation, which, you know, when we think of a technology platform, or at least I certainly think about the literal metaphor of I'm climbing up on top of a platform so I can get higher faster. Mm -hmm. And and that's what it's really all about for us. So let's let's talk about, you know, why why an IoT platform? I mean, why if you're if you're trying to get data from some physical device that's out there in the field, why not just spin up an AWS or Heroku instance and start collecting pings from the device and storing them in a giant database? Um, well, because then you've got to dig out the well, first of all, just to just to get those pings into a database in the first place um, uh, could be a little bit of heavy lifting. Now, we do run into people that have done kind those kinds of prototypes on their own. And, and it's it's fun stuff. You get a Raspberry Pi and you learn how to geek out with, um, you know, a Node.js server and, and fling some data into a MongoDB. It really is the variability and the rapid pace of change for what, what's going on um, at the edge and the data volumes and, and robustness and security and all the, all the other stuff that you don't think about from a full life cycle of an IoT solution that makes that really the wrong choice. So just take it to the logical conclusion. I got my gizmos that are flinging databases, flinging data into my, my database in the sky, um, and I'm wildly successful, right? People buy the crap out of my, my gizmos and they're connected gizmos and I've got a cool little mobile app um, and I've got a couple of million of them in circulation. But, oh, I forgot to add security. 
<laughs> Oops. So what am I going to do? Ask all of my millions of users to uh, take a thumb drive, um, a thumbstick with the new software update and plug it into the gizmo. And that'd be kind of silly. It's a connected device, right? That, oh. that has happened, by the way. Oh, <laughs> on uh, IoT platforms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we know about those. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty obvious that I would build in the capability to do software updates. Well, stop right there because whatever you were delivering as the experience for your connected gizmo, if, you know, that unit of work was, uh, you know, a couple of man months, well, building an infrastructure to do automated software updates to millions of connected devices in a secure way is a few man years of effort. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, maybe it's a great proxy question to ask, why do I need a platform? Because it's all the stuff that you really don't want to be messing your hands with. You don't want to be building the software update infrastructure, but you vitally need it. Mm -hmm. Just like for a web application server, I don't want to be building the open uh, open SSL library stack from scratch. Um, I'm going to make even worse than the heart bleed bug. I'm going to make like mm -hmm. all body fluid bleed <laughs> bugs and that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to leave that to the experts, to people who understand how to build those components. So everyone is using a platform today for every other kind of development. We're just talking about bigger building blocks. Um, that's functionality that you're going to need. You might not be thinking about it in the early days, but trust us, you're going to come back to uh, to the need to have those advanced capabilities. And if the, the the size and time to market constraints for getting your solution onto the market are short, and guess what? When aren't they short? Then yet another reason why you need to tap into a set of building blocks that's already been built. Right. So, you know, let's talk about how broadly applicable a single IoT platform could be. Um, is it the same platform that you can use for both, you know, industrial applications and commercial applications? There are there are going to be unique considerations in industrial uh, versus uh, consumer uh, types of devices. I think it's about where the platform or or what breadth of your total solution the platform has a role. So for an industrial application, what we see typified by industrial application are complex equipment high value, expensive equipment, but very rapidly changing business processes. So hmm. equipment being used in the business context where applications may need to change literally daily. So leveraging a platform for almost 100% capability of rapid application development, I don't have time to be messing around with any other technology. I need to have a full service platform where my developers can go into every day and make the apps that they need, click save, and they're done and deployed into my industrial use case environment. Great. In the consumer space, that same capability, well, maybe my devices aren't as complex. It's not an industrial robot. It's just a coffee machine. Mm -hmm. But the polish around my application has to be pixel perfect. So I'm going to use now much of the behind the scenes capability that the platform's offering me. But I may have um, some really top-notch, world-class designers that are building the pixel-perfect mobile application experience for my connected coffee machine. Great. So non-visual components being leveraged by the platform and used by API integration into the you know whatever tools those you know black belt mobile application developers want to use. Right. Then under, underneath it all is a common architecture where you're talking about uh, properties, services, and events, right? So that's the same right. architecture that can serve, um, you know, a, uh, a piece of industrial machinery or a fitness wearable or a connected home 
or a fleet management system, right? That's right. Just like for the web, we're building blocks or TCP IP and HTTP and HTML. So there are fundamental building blocks that, um, that that's what you should be looking for in your, your horizontally applicable IoT application mm-hmm. uh, or platform. Now, we also think there's another optic to think about platforms through, and it's the network effect. Mm -hmm. So maybe less about the technology and more about the business ecosystem around a platform. So we were just talking about what completely generic building block components should you find in an IoT platform. Beyond that, remember the goal of the platform is to get you higher. I wanna climb up on some stuff Mm -hmm. so that I can spend more of my time doing the unique magic that I'm trying to do. Well, sometimes it's more specificity (laughs) about the problem domain that I'm attacking. Um, I'm not going to find that in a general purpose platform, Mm -hmm. but the platform itself should allow for domain experts to extend the capabilities. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, an example could be, just pull an example out of the air, usage-based insurance. Mm -hmm. Great use case for IoT. Lots of common building blocks could be brought to bear for your general usage-based insurance solution. But the horizontally applicable platform doesn't understand what a car is mm-hmm. or what a trip is or the relationship between a driver and the car and the insurance carrier and the you know actuarial firm that does the driver scoring. But an extension that brings some of those domain concepts into the platform on top of the base platform could allow for even more rapid quicker time to market solutions that are oriented around usage-based insurance, or even a lower level than that, just general telematics, vehicle telematics and fleet logistics. So we have an open ecosystem where we allow our partners to build these extensions and they can plug them into our marketplace and our users can download those extensions and get themselves a little bit told, maybe like putting a little soapbox on top of the platform a little bit closer to the problem that I was trying to solve, a little bit more specific. So usage-based insurance is a great way to talk about uh, this model of where you have properties, services, and events. And and you had a couple of uh, slides about this in the webcast that you led back at the beginning of December. And by the way, the slides from that webcast on December 10th are available um, on the website. We'll, we'll link to them from the show notes that you can get to at O'Reilly.com slash hardware uh, if you want to see Joe's slides about, about this, this, this model. But maybe you could walk us through uh, with the example of usage-based insurance. What's a property? What's a service? What's an event? Sure. So it's actually best described uh, as thinking about this as an API for my thing. So my thing's out there in the real world. It's hanging loose. It's got... Uh, it's got its physical thing. It's hard. Um, it's uh, not solid, but hardware. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> See where I'm going with that one? Yep. Uh, um, but it's in the real world. It's in a potentially nasty, dirty environment. Maybe or maybe it's in a nice office building. So it's hanging out in its physical world. Meanwhile, there's like the digital representation of that thing. And before the IoT, that digital representation was pretty anemic. Right. It was maybe just the original CAD design of it or some records in a database that describe who we sold the thing to and when its last maintenance was. Not very rich set of information. So it's great that the IoT gives us ways to augment uh, the physical thing with ways to relay its status. I can connect to a sensor or maybe the internal status can be relayed through an inter- internet connection through Wi-Fi or cellular, whatever it is. That's fantastic. Meanwhile, though, we've got the other business system information that describes the thing's digital life. Mm -hmm. So we want to combine the physical realities that we can now access given the IoT with the 
the, the other digital life um, life cycle stuff that's also very relevant. So the model of the thing, the API of the thing has to accommodate the 360 degree view of what's happening to me right now in my physical environment. What happened to me last year when I was uh, released from the factory and sold to XYZ ABC company? All of that information needs to be collated and focused through the lens of this API. And not only that, but it has to be extensible, right? So that the uh, the manufacturer can decide later that they want to get, they want to characterize some new property or some new aspect of the, of the device, update the software and start receiving it. That's right. And by the way, we, we have this um, idea of really for the, for the object-oriented programmers in the room, inheritance model. So if I, de- if I can describe my base level widget, you know, mm-hmm. and a product manufacturer would typically have a whole product line, a generation uh, of a particular product line where one class of product builds upon another. So I'm a washing machine. Well, every washing machine's got, you know, running hours and water temperature. Well, fancy dancy new Model B washing machine builds upon our base level washing machine, but also also adds countdown timer, four kinds of wash cycles. So now an interesting property is what was the last or most recent or most typical mm-hmm. selection for the wash cycle. So we're building upon the base level model, and that gives us a couple of uh, re- uh, really uh, interesting powers. Uh, just like, again, in the object-oriented sense, I can interact with a base level class and get the common functionality and have a generic experience around it. I can start to have uh, an app that's built around the washing machine even before I know what kind of washing machine it is. Mm-hmm. And everyone who's got a washing machine of any kind can use that app. And, oh, by the way, I have Model B from ABC Company. Then I can get more specific in my application but inherit all the functionality that was uh, was already configured. Right, right. And how do you as the designer of one of these systems figure out how to make it extensible, how to make it uh, future-proofed? I mean, do you have to put this architecture directly into the embedded system and never touch it again? Or is this something that you can update remotely when you have a connected device? It's, it's always, it's going to be most synergistic if the embedded application within the product has some sense of how it's describing itself and how the other end, the application and the cloud, is understanding it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Uh, and they can drift over time with some course correction. Um, but you're going to start out cleaner if if uh, the washing machine understands its property, services, and events so that it can stay in lockstep with what's happening on the application. Uh, but of course, these things will drift over time. And, over, and you know, by the way, some connected products may have a life cycle of decades. Uh, so these things might be out in the field and in use for, for many, many years. While the application experience that you want to deliver around that you know, legacy product that's still out there has changed, uh, you'll certainly want to affect and alter the way the legacy thing describes itself. Now, it will have physical limitations, like I didn't have a sensor for my vibration level in mm-hmm. uh, 2010 when I was deployed, and so now I'll never have a vibration sensor. However, my internal operation, the way I uh, go about my own business as the product, um, my embedded application that controls me, uh, that may need to be updated to fix bugs or to address security concerns or just to fit better with the next generation of applications. We see the rapid change of uh, applications in the cloud being uh, somewhat of a proxy for the rapid change of the embedded application that's on the device. Maybe not at the same rate, but the way people will be using and interacting with connected devices is going to it's going to really change the way they what they expect 
mm-hmm. from a manufacturer of such a device. Well, it's connected. Can't you upgrade it remotely? Yeah. Well, so much of that capability has to be designed in now, um, which, you know, by the way, brings us to the topic of how the IoT, I guess the idea of uh, building these connected products is influencing the design of the product in the first place. Not just about adding connectivity to the product, but how will this physical product evolve over time given the fact that its intelligence, its software, and its digital twin representation in the cloud will change more rapidly than we can possibly update the hardware itself. The atoms um, will not experience the same rate of change as the software. And how do we design a product that accommodates that? Right. And, and, and this is something that's changing really, really rapidly. Uh, when you see teardowns of, of new devices, whether they are consumer appliances like washing machines or industrial appliances, agricultural appliances, the you know, entertainment systems in cars, all of it has become digital. Um, you know, you used to have in a washing machine an analog circuit that would say, you know, move the the washer from the spin cycle onto the the uh, the rinse cycle. And now there's a microcontroller. It's all programmed. It's it's a generalized platform, and there's software that's telling it when to move from the spin cycle to the rinse cycle. Same with same with cars. Uh, the turn signal is no longer a, um, a a solenoid switch connected directly to uh, to the turn signal handle behind the steering wheel. Now the turn signal signal handle is a uh, is a switch that's connected to a microcontroller, and the microcontroller is switching the the turn signal on and off. Right. So th- this presents a yeah. lot of really good opportunities for for later updates. Um, well, how about, you know, I think the, the recent, uh, yeah, relatively recent um, news about how Tesla has updated certain you know, aspects of how yeah. the Tesla Model S operates. Um, yeah, yeah, so describe just those. Riffing on that idea, this isn't the exact example, but this is one that I thought was would be really cool when I heard about that capability, which is kind of obvious to us, right? But it's, it's great that it's hitting mainstream kind of mind share. Mm-hmm. You could use machine learning technology. Uh, vehicle's a great use case. If we've got vibration sensors and accelerometers in the vehicle, and of course you do, um, maybe I kind of notice that if you live in Massachusetts like I do, there's a lot of vibration and accelerometer events <laughs> in the uh, the, the y-axis the, the, as I'm the, rolling uh, around. The horn event uh, shows up a lot in the car's metadata. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, well, I, I know where the car is. It's latitude and longitude. I know that Massachusetts has a lot of, let's say, road surface issues. Maybe I can alter the suspension on the fly because of what I've learned about the environment that you happen to be in right now, not where we ship the vehicle, not where you said that you live or work, but where you actually are right now, we know that the road surface is uneven. So we're going to soften the suspension, particularly on a curve where a softer suspension is going to give you more grip on the road so that you don't literally skip or skim across. You know, just mm-hmm. these are the kinds of thoughts that I, that, that, that ran through my mind with the idea of a vehicle that updates its own behavior, uh, certainly not for anything that would be safety critical, but just for the comfort and, and ride experience based on what it knows about the environment, not just for what my vehicle, the, the one that I literally own and drive in, has been doing, but the rest of the people around me. Kind of like what Google's doing with their Waze mapping. Um, how, could, how could they help my driver experience even more by affecting the vehicle state? Right. And, and this example um, brings up another really interesting set of questions that I hear a lot of people struggle with as they think about the value that they can provide through their products in you know, pursuing an, an IoT strategy 
or a connected hardware strategy. We've seen a lot of the value go into smartphones for just about everything that you could do with a specialized piece of hardware eventually becomes something you could do with a smartphone. Once upon a time, separate standalone GPS navigators were just much more accurate than smartphones for navigating. Now smartphones are just as good as a, as a standalone navigation device. Um, once upon a time, you know, a, a Fitbit was a much better way to monitor your steps than your smartphone. Now your smartphone's accelerometer is sophisticated enough that you can get a really good signature from that. Yeah, tough, so the, tough break for Fitbit. It is, yeah. <laughs> tough, tough break for, for TomTom, for that matter, too. Yep. You know, all of these uh, functions have just been rolled up into software on everyone's phone, and your phone is, the, is this unimaginably um, sophisticated sensor package that you have with you all over the place. So, so a lot of these companies are, are asking themselves, what kind of value can I add that makes my hardware essential. That's that's not going to get just just sucked up by the mobile phone software in a year or two. And your example about um, you know adjusting the characteristics of the car and how it's driving is a good one because car makers have really struggled with this. You know the that that um, native GPS navigation functionality is like the very best margin on any product you could ever imagine. That yeah. that three thousand dollars that you pay to upgrade to have in dash navigation in your car, yeah, which sucks six months after you buy the car. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't up, <laughs> it doesn't update itself. It doesn't have live traffic. Uh, you know, the screen is probably about the size of of one of these modern absurd uh, you know six S. Yeah, six forty by four eighty was state of the art in two thousand eight when the vehicle exactly. And now we want ultra HD in our. Nah, uh, dashboards. Yeah, or for that matter, you know, the, the satellite radio upgrade, right? Which is not a very expensive piece of hardware, but it's big recurring revenue and the car makers get a kickback for it. Now you just listen to podcasts on your phone, right? Like all of you out there listening to this. So, Swing. yeah, <laughs> so the, so the, uh, so the car makers are struggling with this, you know, what, what sort of value can they provide by connecting the car that's not just going to come out through, um, you know, through a phone, something where you're actually taking data that's coming in through the the mechanical elements of the car and making sense of it and then maybe reading back and changing the way that the car drives is a great example of how you can add value through software through connectivity that's not going to get eaten by a by a mobile phone yeah maybe and i'm certainly no great thinker in this regard but one of the things that occurs to me is that we, i don't know that we need more kinds of products but if you make a product like a, a watch how about making the watch better? Like mm -hmm. whatever the watch is supposed to do, it's supposed to tell time better. If it's connected, and I don't know the answer to this one, um, but just make its its inherent reason for being better through the connectivity. Don't try to make it do unnatural things that it wasn't meant to do just because you can. Because some other kind of device that's more applicable for that use case will do it better in the end anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you're a car, be a better car. Right. Don't be a better navigator. At the moment, there there isn't a good stand-in for the uh, for the sound system on your car, but you see the other end of of the car audio system getting subsumed by the by the mobile phone. Right. You're just you're download you're you're streaming Pandora through your car, or you're streaming podcasts through your car. Now you can stream YouTube through your car. Uh, now that they've up upgraded uh, YouTube to make it easier to to just listen to audio, download stuff, and so on. So it's um. That end of it is is uh, is getting sucked up by the mobile phones and yeah, well, speakers probably will at some point the too. Software. So Mark Andreessen said software is eating the world. I don't know. What do we say about IoT? Is software eating the IoT, or is IoT eating software? Wow. Think on that one, folks. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, Who's I mean, eating who? Yeah. 
because there there are two two sides to this that are coming together, and um, and and we we've been following this at O'Reilly for for several years, and it was this realization that there were two sides headed for each other that made us start to get involved in this area. You have on on one hand companies that have always made physical things, uh, whether it's you know heavy industrial physical things like like at GE or consumer physical things, you know appliances and wearables and so on. And uh, and they're interested in making these things intelligent. So they're approaching it from the physical first, then add electronics and connectivity side. Yep. On the other side, you see this interest in the IoT from software companies, from you know Google and Amazon and Microsoft. They all see connected devices as a way to add to the incredible store of data that they've that they've built up. They already have all the data about everything that's already online, right? Amazon knows everything about about online retail. And they can optimize the hell out of whatever they want. Google knows everything about, you know, the general topology of the web. Uh, and they can use that to optimize, you know, searching, machine learning. They have the biggest database of images of streets out there. So they can they yep. can start to make assumptions. Uh, Facebook knows everything about the relationships between people and social data. And the, these companies are all standing up and looking around and going, whoa, we can extend this even further. We can go, you know, Google knows right now what kind of device you're on and what kind of website you're looking at. Wouldn't it be great if they could also know whether you're at home and are you at home in your kitchen or are you at home in your study? Yep. And hey, now they have well, uh, we can, Nest course, and Dropcam. Right. And yep. so now they can now they now they can add this to the to the richness of their data. So so the IoT is 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 being approached by these two these two sides, one of which sees software as a way to extend the value of its hardware. The other of which sees hardware as a way to extend the value of its software. So, to come back to whether IoT is eating software or software is eating IoT, um, I think both sides are chomping along steadily <laughs> toward each other. They're gnawing on each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny that, that you know. I know lots of folks have mixed feelings about Google and, and Nest, but I think about the things that Google is doing and companies like Google as really an extension of the user in, interface and user input. Mm-hmm. So in the early days of computing, we just had green screens to look at, some blips of text fly by. And, um, you know, then later we got some pretty screens, screens of different size and screens that you could take with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then instead of using a keyboard, you could use a mouse. And then instead of a mouse, you could use a touch interface. So the evolution now, it's almost computing just jumped out of the computer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the user input device can be the world, like the stuff around you. So you're giving your input as a user by walking around your house. Right, right. You're not logging into a web app and clicking your mouse around on a, a, a backlit screen to say when you want your heat on. You're just walking around right. and that programs. So you, it's the it's the world as a user input device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've been calling this design after the screen, right? And, uh, and, and it's a good repost to people who worry that, that we're spending more and more of our lives with our faces buried in our phones, right? And and yeah. Yeah. you start to talk to people sometimes about the connected connected devices, the idea of the IoT, things being smart in your home, at your office, in, in industry, and so on. Uh, and, and often they'll come back and say, oh my God, I already spend too much time staring at my phone and staring at a computer screen. Now you're trying to make more of these things phones and, and computer screens. But the, I think the opposite is true. It's it's what you're describing. I mean- um, I don't need to look at a screen. You don't need to look at a screen. Your, your thermostat goes on, or if in the future, your car drives itself. And right now, now think of the, right now the human is is the interface layer between all of these systems right if if you right. want to have a pizza tonight you start by looking on your phone at Yelp and you look up a good pizza place and then you you take 
the address from Yelp and you open up a different app on your phone yeah. and you paste it into Long Google Maps. click, wait for the copy to appear. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So here here you are as like a communication layer between two apps. All right. Now you've, yeah. you've put it into the next app. Now you're going to read off of of the Maps app as you drive. So you're reading output from the Maps app and you are putting input into your car's controls. But imagine... Um, 10 years from now, when you have driverless cars, this is a matter of, of looking at the pizza place you want and hitting go, and then you're taken there. All of these layers of interface that you have right now with a computing device just uh, pancake onto each other, and it happens within the computing device. So to go back to, to, your, to your point about uh, Google and people being worried that this data is being captured, I think Google has figured out over the course of um, capturing a lot of personal data and through what it's done with Nest, and what happened to Google Glass, that the important thing is to be transparent about the data you're collecting and to give it back to the users. Um, and this is illustrated in a handful of interesting ways. I'm a big fan. Have you have you ever looked at Google location history? I have. Isn't that a magnificent thing? I don't use it. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but I, I, I mean, I purposely turned you it switched off. switched it off. How, what utility do you get out of it? I mean, I, besides the most obvious utility, what makes you feel it's so cool? Yeah, so fun uh, fun memory. I just find it gratifying to look at uh, at a map of a day when I took a really long hike, long walk or something, and see all the walking I did, or or the map of a day when I did a lot of traveling. And it's remarkably good. It can, it can I guess the GPS goes on a little bit even when you're in airplane mode, so it knows what path your plane took over, oh, wow. you know, Wyoming. I didn't realize it did that. Yeah, so it, when they released it, my first thought was it's creepy, but then my second thought was, wow, this is pretty cool. I guess it's storing the history versus doing something with the current location. So uh, mm -hmm. personally, I'm okay with, um, you know, hey, my phone knows I've got location services on mm -hmm. and certain apps are able to look at my history and tell me, oh, you asked for a reminder when you were, you know, at the office. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. boom, here's a reminder. But maintaining a chronological history of my location. I guess I don't know that it's not happening. So you touched upon something very important. It's transparency about what's being acquired mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and stored. That goes a long way at alleviating the anxiety about, right. I don't really know what they've got. Right. So if, if these service providers said, here's what we got on you, Mm -hmm. It's not that scary, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 uh, and that's you know the the counter example. Google's hard lesson with glass was that uh, people were uncomfortable about it because you had people wearing glass walking around, and and there is a light when you're recording, but uh, it's it's not that uh, obvious to some people, and and just the idea of of folks walking around with a camera that's beaming back everything that they're looking at to Google turned out to be a big a big liability for the product. So you have these these two examples, and I was going to add one from Nest as well. Um, if you have a Nest Protect thermostat, you know, it has a nightlight in it. And when you walk under the nightlight, it, it goes on for you very gently. It's a neat um, add-on. It turns out that through the Nest app, you can see every instance when the nightlight went on, mm. which is cool. And that's, that's obviously very useful data for Nest. They know when you're waking up in the middle of the night and going right. to the bathroom, but, um, <laughs> but they're giving it back to you and you can see it. So, so it, it, yeah, it alleviates some of that anxiety. That's that, but that anxiety was very much present in glass where you had people walking around capturing a lot of data. No one was really sure exactly what data they're capturing. Yeah. Where is this going? Yeah. And we're going to peek at your left. See oh. if your camera was uh, blocked out. Lots of people seeing lots of people with little pieces of tape mm -hmm. over their uh, their notebook computers 
camera lens. Yeah, it's so, a giveaway at a lot of conferences now. There's yeah. a little thing that you can clip on to your, to your camera and with a slider so you can open and close it when you oh, want to actually handy. have a call. Most of what I'm seeing is painter's tape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would do that, but this this laptop's really new and I hate to put tape on the, on the screen. I'll, I'll get around to it at some point. I'm not putting anything on my laptop screen. I think there was a, a news article or something maybe a year ago about some scare that maybe Apple or Microsoft or whoever would be turning on your camera without turning the light on to let mm. you know the camera's on. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, it's a little bit paranoia, but obviously people are concerned about it because very rational, tech-savvy folks have those pieces of painter's tape mm-hmm. on their camera lens. Mm-hmm. So clearly, just as a society, we are not cool with data being collected when we don't know it's being collected. Yeah. And yeah. we're kind of okay with data being collected that we know about and we can review and see ourselves. Exactly. All right. Well, let's move into our next segment, which we call Click Spiral. This is where the guests on the podcast and the hosts talk about something that they've lost a lot of time to on the internet recently. It's not necessarily hardware or IoT related. Often it ends up being in the end, but we'll sort of talk through this. And if you, the listeners, have a Click Spiral that you'd like to add to the podcast for Joe and me or David Craner, my my co-host and me to contemplate to lose some time to on the internet and then discuss on the podcast, uh, you can email it to us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. And we'll take a look at it. We'll sink some time into it. So uh, I'll begin with uh, with with my click spiral. There's a terrific sort of imponderable that Randall Monroe, who is the author of XKCD, the web comic, has answered. And it's one that I think about a lot as I think about complex physical systems. Uh, and it's uh, at what point will the bandwidth of the Internet equal the bandwidth of FedEx? So this is a uh, it comes up a lot when I talk about sneaker nets. Before we were recording, Joe and I were talking about this service at Amazon Web Services where if you have so much data that it takes ages to send it over the network or you have a slow network, they'll actually ship you a box with hard drives. You need some big sneakers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, <laughs> it's a yeah, forklift-sized sneakers. <laughs> a bunch of dudes with big feet. <laughs> exactly, exactly, in coveralls and, yeah, looking very industrial. Um, so, so that's a... a Sneaker nets are still around. They obviously still have a place. So it's a really good question. You know, how does the bandwidth of the internet compare to the bandwidth of FedEx? So Randall Monroe took this on and determined that 2040 is the year of the crossover. That's when if you were to fill FedEx's fleet with solid state laptop drives, then FedEx would transfer about 150 exabytes of data per day or 14 petabits per second. Today, that's 100 times the throughput of the internet. And given the current growth rate of the internet, it's going to reach that in about 2040. Now, the interesting add-on to this is if you use SD cards instead of laptop hard drives, these are much, much denser storage media, then uh, you you could transmit about 177 petabits per second or two zettabytes per day, which is a thousand times the internet's current traffic level. And uh, given the current growth rate of the internet, also the rate at which density of storage is increasing, probably the internet will never hit the sneaker net in terms of bandwidth. Well, if we have, um, you know, quantum storage, then maybe that means uh, you can't even find your data unless you have a cat that you kill. (laughs) Who knows if your data is there or not? That's, That's not going to be much of a reassurance. That was to, physics geek humor, by yeah. the way. Yeah, <laughs> I might have to Google Schrodinger's cat to get that one. Uncertain, <laughs> uncertain data. Um, Did so, we make our numbers this quarter? I'm not sure. Well, that's adequate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So status quo. 
Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I'll link to this write-up by Randall Monroe in the show notes that you can find at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And uh, now we go to Joe. What is your click spiral? Uh, mine's not nearly so relevant to technology, <laughs> but uh, it is something that I lost a good amount of time to this weekend. So there are these um, laser projection machines that are all the rage throughout my town and neighborhood this year. Um, it's instead of putting individual lights and stringing them on your bushes for the holidays, you buy one of these laser projectors and stick it in the ground and angle it towards your house mm -hmm. or a tree. And it makes uh, the, the effect on a tree is just spectacular because it, at night, obviously, it really does make it look like you meticulously placed evenly distributed huh. single LED lights on your tree. Yeah. To, to the effect that if you're in front of the tree, some people will swear that those are physical LEDs until huh. they see in the bushes behind <laughs> them the projector. Uh -huh. So it's pretty cool stuff. So I, my wife told me that she saw this. She go check it out. So I lost about two hours on Saturday uh -huh. <laughs> looking at the Amazon reviews for like the, you know, the, the, the really like industrial strength one that's like featured in six flags uh -huh. Uh -huh. and it's like 160 bucks. I'm like, whoa, hold on. Not an impulse buy here. Yeah. So I'm going to read the reviews and I was there for like something like 200 reviews and I read every single one of them <laughs> and I learned about optics. I learned about laser technology. <laughs> I learned about the Chinese manufacturing industry mm -hmm, and, the, mm -hmm. and how I should go to Home Depot and buy the $39.99 version. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sounds it's like almost a supply chain. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least one fourth is good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I bought it and then set it up and you bought the one from a Home bought Depot. bought the one from Home Depot. Okay. <laughs> so this projector does it have the you know the mechanical spinning mirror in it? That's that's ah uh, um, uh, the cheap the cheap knockoff version doesn't. It's but, more like um, an LED projector. Yeah, the catalog version Cadillac version has the kaleidoscope effects and yeah yeah yeah, it's, which looks kind of freaky. Like you can make the you can make the lights look like they're kind of like insects that are swarming around. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I'm not sure people want to see that on my bushes. Can can you reprogram the uh, the imagery or does it is it only projecting? No. So one? interesting hack, maybe another wasted yeah, weekend. Yeah. Would be how do I get my Arduino and Raspberry Pi connected to IoT platform? I'm sure there, <laughs> I'm sure there's a way. I'm sure there's a way. It's yeah. going to take a uh, little electrical engineering chops to take yeah. that sucker apart and yeah. find where to do the the control but the cheap one may actually be easier to reverse engineer than the cadillac one that you didn't buy yeah because the case already fell apart <laughs> <laughs> that helps that it's, helps the pcbs are already exposed it's great <laughs> right 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 <laughs> and it's also probably built on top of a uh you know a, a shenzhen electronics market um mobile phone uh, SOC or something that's standard and that you can get into. Right, because it's easier just to take one of those and build some bespoke. Exactly. <laughs> Costs six bucks. <laughs> so Cool. Excellent click spiral. Um, yeah. I'm going to look into these laser projectors as well. And uh, we'll put up the the link to, to some laser projectors in the show notes as well cool. at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, as always. As always as well. And we'll come back and do another one of these uh, early in 2016. All right. I'm going to have to make sure that I do more interesting click streams between now and then. That was a pretty good one. Now I have a reason to waste my time on the web. Thank you, John. Well, now you know what I'm going to be doing <laughs> the next time I have a long car ride to the airport. You're going to be staring Amazon at a laser projector? Laser projectors. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks very much, Joe. All right. Thanks, man. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, 
make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>